Well, I often ask engaged couples, why do you want to get married? And the responses that I hear are usually really good. So some couples will say, you know, I I love them. I love them to their spouse to be. I love them and I want to be with them forever. Till death do we part. Other couples will will respond in, in very encouraging ways. They'll say, you know, they love Jesus so well. They make me want to follow Jesus better. And that's a, a wonderful thing. A lot of great answers. You know, I've never heard someone tell me when asked the question, why do you want to, to marry your fiance? I've never had someone say to me, because I really want to get on their insurance. I, I've never heard someone tell me, I really just want to get their inheritance eventually. I never want to use them to become a Texan, which for many of you is justifiable enough in your minds. But how shocking it would be to to think that somebody would enter into an unbelievable commitment to view this person as a way to use them for something else. I believe in our text this morning, we see evidence that many people approach Jesus with the desire of using Him. In pride, they approach Him, hoping to ask Him to turn and to follow after them to fulfill their lives and their dreams and their plans. And in their mind, all they need is Jesus to put them over the top. They've made a homemade throne for Him, and they need Him to come and sit on it. But they don't approach Jesus how we're called to, in humility, turning and trusting in Him. That's life and that's good news this Sunday morning. We celebrate that the Savior has risen, but we want to make sure we understand who the Savior is that has risen. He is one that's worthy of us coming in in humbleness to turn and trust in Him. So when we come to Jesus, there's two responses. Father, we come in pride demanding that He turn and follow after us. Or we come to Him in humility, turning and trusting in Him, worshiping Him, loving Him, gaining Him. For being with Christ is truly the prize. If we are with Him, there is no fear. So let's begin in our passage that Roman read for us just a moment ago. As we note, the first of the possible responses that in pride, many ask Jesus to turn and follow after them. There's three scenes that we're going to see in this first portion of the text, in this feeding text that model this. The first is that the crowd seems to want medicine, but not the Messiah. They want a Messiah that can help to make them well physically, but they don't long for the Messiah, the one from above the sinless Holy One who bids people to turn and to trust in Him, to deny themselves, to take up the cross and follow after Him. They they desire to use Jesus to get well, but they don't desire Jesus Himself. They want medicine, not a Messiah. The scene in verses 1 through 2 set this very well. And can you imagine the spectacle that this would be? For a text like this, it's so important. In your mind, imagine being there. Imagine, if you will, as Jesus and His disciples have gone up on the mountainside. Together they look up and they see the crowd approaching Him. The news of Jesus has spread. 
Now, perhaps in your mind, as you see a crowd made up of 5,000 men, so maybe 15, maybe 20,000 people are coming to you in mass. And why are they coming? It's because last year at the Passover, if you remember that text, last year at the Passover, Jesus was, had the interaction with the Jewish religious leaders, and He was healing so many people. He was healing so many people, and those people see the signs that He does, and they begin to put the dots together that, hey, He's fulfilling a lot of the check marks for who the Messiah is that the Scriptures foretold of hundreds and hundreds of years before. They begin to put the dots together, and they follow Him because He was healing the sick. But it says in John chapter 2, the Gospel of John, that He would not give Himself over to them. He evades them. Well, now a year of momentum has built. A year of expectation. So the masses come and they're gathering and they're looking for Jesus and they find Him and they approach Him as they gather again for the Passover. It says they come to Him in verse 2, the crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Now those that were well, at the very least, they were gaining a, a show. Can you imagine a more amazing and interesting and engaging spectacle? Imagine with me that you heard on the east side of Lake Nacogdoches, there was one out there who was fulfilling scriptures, who was speaking incredible things, and was healing people. As a matter of fact, he had healed one of your friends that had been handicapped, lame, for over 40 years. Another family member of yours who was blind could now see. Wouldn't you get in your car right now and drive down to Lake Nacogdoches to get a view of him? Now, maybe you stay in your car maintaining good social distancing, but you travel down there to, to see them, to see him. So the crowds come for Jesus, imagining some of them are sick, hoping that he will make them well. And others that are healthy, I mean, to make such a, a walk, I'm sure many of them were very quite healthy, but they're putting the dots together and they're coming to see Him. They want to use Jesus. We'll see this continue to explore and explode in, in, in incredible ways as they hope to use Him to fulfill their desires. They long for medicine. They long for health. Who of us doesn't long for health? And we're to go to the Lord in prayer. That God calls us to cast our cares upon the Lord, but the crowd identifying that Jesus may indeed be the Messiah, wants to come to Him in order to use Him. And if He will not be used by Him, they will long to take Him by force and bring Him back to sit, them, sit Him on their throne. What a dangerous thing. What an intimidating and frightening reality now that some could identify and say, this really may be the one from God. Boy, he'd sit well on the throne of my life, not to lead me, but so that I can use him for what I most desire. They long for medicine, not a Messiah. So Jesus sees the crowd, and secondly, he's going to feed them. This massive feast, as Roman read for us, they, they want to feast on the Messiah's food, but they don't desire to feast on the Messiah. 
In verses 3 through 13, we, we capture this uh, incredible scene. As a matter of fact, all the gospel writers include this story. It's the only miracle scene that's included in all four gospels, all scriptures inspired by God and equally authoritative. But that's of note. This is a story that each of the writers wanted to make sure their audience grasped very well. As we look to the text, we want to think about what the Passover was. D.A. Carson writes that the Passover for the Palestinian Jews would have been something like for the American the 4th of July, or for the Texan, we, on one might think, the Alamo. It was a time of pride, of celebration, of joy, as you remembered that the God who reveals Himself to Moses as the I Am, that He is a delivering, promise-keeping, faithful God, who overcomes all the odds and delivers His people. He cares for His people and frees them even from captivity. So here the people are coming up to see Jesus at the Passover, this feast. And right before them is Jesus, the One that they're to come and to feast upon. Seeing and longing to eat of Jesus is to come and to believe upon Him. This is what our text next week, as we see Jesus' next interaction with this crowd, is going to make so abundantly clear for us. That to eat and to drink of Jesus is to come and believe upon Him. The crowd comes to Jesus, and Jesus knows their motives. Did you see that? He knows them, just as He knew the crowd in John chapter 2. He knows their motives. He knows their hearts. He knows they don't desire to come and to confess Him and to, and to follow after Him. They come desiring to use Him, but who is our God? Who is Jesus? That He would know their hearts. He would know their, their motives. And He would look at them lovingly and decide to feed them a feast that will never be forgotten in human history. That's our God. He's worthy of worship, the loving kindness and compassion of God our Savior. How good is He? He is risen and He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your confession. The crowd, they ate this meal to the point that they were stuffed. They were completely filled. But they would again get hungry. But all who come and believe upon Jesus to turn from sin and place their faith in Him, they will be filled forever. We've seen a Samaritan woman who thirsted. And Jesus offered her living water. Jesus, the one who perfectly did the will of the Father, Jesus feeds the masses. He loves them and kindly meets their physical need for this meal. But He offers them something so much more. He offers them Himself. That's what He offers you. He offers you not simply to meet your needs, but He offers you something more to meet your eternal needs. This is the good news of Christ. This is the hope that we have and the fact that we can come and feast upon Jesus. But sadly, some will come to Jesus only for a feast. Some will come to Jesus, a temporary feast of the body. Others will come to Jesus only in a, in a desire to get physically well for a season. But in both of those cases, many will come to Jesus longing only to use Him. Not to know Him and to worship Him and to turn in humility and trust Him. What a tragedy. But Paul wants to make sure we grasp all of this. Not Paul, but John. And God in His Word wants to make sure we grasp this. For we go to verses 14 and 15, 
And we note that they want a Jesus that they can use. Not the one they're called to worship and to, to submit to and to surrender to. Not one to know and be known by. Not one to be forgiven by. Not one to abide in. Not one to rest in. They want a Jesus. They want a Messiah that they can use in pride. Look at 14 and 15. As a reminder, the text reads, when the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Now in our text, there's a lot of questions that we can get stuck in. And they're, and, they're, and they're worthwhile questions, I think. But a lot of why questions. Why did Jesus choose to feed the crowd, to feed the masses with the five and the two, the five pieces of barley bread? Not even expensive bread, but common man's working bread. Why does he ask Philip what he asks him to do? Philip, by the way, would have been a, 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 a local guy. Born in Bethsaida. He would have been a bib born in Bethsaida. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this, the bins born in Nacogdoches. Well, Jesus looks at Philip and he asks him, knowing what he's going to do in this miracle and kindness toward these people who we know in mass want to use him. And he asks him what to do and, and Philip estimates the cost to, to buy this locally will be about eight months of wages. So much cost. Andrew listening, the, I think, kind of comical pragmatist, he looks and he says, well, here's this boy here. He's got, he's got five pieces of bread and two fish. And we don't know why the boy came. It doesn't give us those answers. Perhaps the boy was sent by his, his mom with a meal to give to Jesus as a, as a gift. Perhaps the boy himself captured the fish and wanted to bring it to Jesus as a gift. We don't know those things. But what we do know is God is worthy of our worship that all who come and partake in Jesus have life, and that even the most insignificant and insufficient gift in the hands of the all-powerful Savior, the God of the universe, is sufficient. We don't know why Jesus chose to use these five and two to feed 20,000 or so people, but we're reminded that the smallest of gifts the Lord can use those things to do great and abundant things. He is a kind and loving Savior. He's worthy of our life. Not worthy for us to approach Him and say, well, you turn Jesus and follow after me and the plans of my life. But rather, you're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my adoration and my love and my life. The very purpose by which I exist Yes, they want a Jesus, though, that they can use. Not one to know and to worship. What is frightening of this is that these people knew their Scriptures very well, it seems. There's no seams about it. They know their Scriptures. And what they're looking for in, in Deuteronomy 18, flip to Deuteronomy 18 in your Bibles for a moment, if you would. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, as you look there, God foretold. He tells Israel of a prophet that will come in the future, one like Moses. If you remember, Moses fed the people, God fed the people by Moses in the wilderness. He gave them food and sustenance. Moses also spoke forth the words of God as God told him to. Well, here's Jesus doing the miracles, doing the signs that point to His identity. 
They're not simply miracles for an end. They're signs that point to his identity. And here he's healing the sick and he's speaking forth the word of God. And now their bellies are full with plenty left over. They are stuffed like hogs. And so they can't deny what they're seeing with their eyes. That Jesus really is the prophet, the one like Moses, the Messiah. He's here. Their stomachs attest to it. They've partaken. They've seen it with their eyes. And what do they desire to do? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus will not be manipulated. He will not be captured by force to sit on their throne. He withdraws from them. We cannot come to Jesus in pride. Come to Jesus in confession of our sin and repentance, trusting in who He is and His good and finished work. We come to Him by faith alone. And that's the great news on this Easter morning, that the grave is empty, that He has spoken forth the words of life. A matter of fact, as John says, He is the Word, the eternal Word, who was in the beginning with God and was God, and who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life and laid His life down on the cross, speaking forth the words of life, fulfilling all the demands of the Scriptures. He walked by the Spirit of God perfectly, and He laid His life down on the cross for sinners like you and I. And He defeated death, rose again from the grave, spoke and taught in His glorified, resurrected physical body. He ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father where He and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit to testify. And all the crosses, you've seen videos of people whose lives have been changed by Christ, who know the risen Jesus. This is the good news. And we're, we come to a point when we see this of personal conviction. Or I can speak for myself of personal conviction where at times I have longed to use Jesus more than I've desired to know Jesus. Even as a pastor in ministry, sometimes my identity and pride can become how I lead people rather than the fact that I'm a child of God in Christ. He is my identity. He is my worth. Christian, He is your identity. He is your worth. Rest in Him. Abide in Him. Celebrate that He is risen and He's changing your life and He calls you to go faithfully into the world to testify of who He is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for His glory. And if you don't know Christ, this is the good news. Not that He can come and sit on your throne. You see, some people come to Jesus, God uses needs. He uses suffering and hardship in His glory and in His incredible way that's far beyond our way to bring many people to know Him as an example. Many who are sick or fearful of getting sick, will, may come to Jesus and the desire to use Him only to get well. That's their desire. And what happens when they get well? I don't need Jesus anymore. I got what I wanted. But our congregation is full of people who were physically sick. And in their weakness, they met Jesus, the risen Savior, they placed their faith and trust in Christ and they became well even though many of them are still physically ill. Many in hardships, whether it was shaking and crumbling marriages, 
financial ruin or hardship that they were facing. They first had the idea to come and to see Jesus and to hear about Jesus, hoping that maybe He would help to build up their life and stabilize them. But, but those that come to Jesus only thinking they'll use them for an easier or better life, when their life begins to improve, they seem to they walk away because they think, I don't need Jesus anymore. But our congregation is filled with people who, under, who, who have endured hardship and whose lives are marked by hardship, but they came to know Jesus in humility. They've received Christ and they abide in Him and their soul is well, though their lives are still quite very hard. You see, hardships can lead us by God's grace to physically be close enough to see Jesus. But it's only the grace of God that can open up our hard and proud hearts to gain true healing and true life. Don't you think in a perspective of a season like this, that's exactly what God desires to do in your life and the life of others? What a perspective shift God gives us by His Word. For we come with an understanding that we gain that it is a desire not simply for a better life, but to be with Jesus for better and for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and in health, till death do we gain Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote of this. He says to, to one of the churches, he says, I'm, I'm pressed between these two options. He says, for if it is of me, I desire to depart and to be with Jesus, to be with Christ, for it is far better. But if I must remain in the flesh for your sake, that is good and so be it. The desire to use Jesus doesn't give us the perspective of Paul, and it doesn't give us a perspective that marked so many in our congregation that we hope you'll come to know and to understand and we'll all come to celebrate in, in this season as well. Yes, we desire to be with Christ, but why can we say it is better that I stay in the flesh? It's because we're busy and active in the work of making disciples, of calling people to follow after Jesus, that God calls us and enables us by His Spirit and equips us to reach after people and to call them to come to life in Jesus. Not in us, they see it in us, but to know Jesus as we aim to love them, show them the love of Christ. This is good news. So in pride, we can approach Jesus and say, Jesus, you turn and follow me. Or in humility, we look at the second portion in verse 16 through 21, and we can turn and trust in Jesus, for He Himself is enough for us. As the story develops, as Roman read so well for us, I love to hear him pray. Don't you? He praises one who knows Jesus, who loves Him. And the disciples in this scene, Jesus has departed from the crowd. The crowd for now disperses, but they're going to find Him later on when they get on the boat to go back to the west side, to Capernaum. And the disciples go and they get in the boat and they're going across the sea and this windstorm happens. And it causes chaos on the waters. And they're a couple miles out on the water. And while they're on the water, they look. I mean, imagine the white caps that happen when it's windy, when you're on a large body of water. And they look and they, they see this figure coming toward them in the wind. The wind will not outpace them from the, the man who's walking on the water. And what do they immediately think? It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Now, they weren't foolish. They knew outdoors life better than we did. 
especially when we're quarantined into our homes in this season. They knew this better than, than anybody, and they knew people don't walk on water, especially in a windstorm, right? And they're terrified. And the Gospel of Matthew says they, they perceive maybe it's a ghost, and they're terrified. Listen, they're not terrified of the windstorm that could possibly capsize their boats and take their life. They're terrified of Jesus. Looking at Jesus, the rest of the storm is put into perspective. He has their attention. And what does Jesus say? It is I. Ego a me. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus gets into the boat with them. And almost miraculous, or for some reason it becomes like a cliff note, they find themselves off the water and onto the shore where they were going to go. You see, to know Jesus, to end humility, talk about being humbled. The men were humbled on this boat as their life was in danger, and they see Jesus walking toward them. They were terrified. And certainly the storm would be justifiable to be frightened in but having an accurate understanding of exactly who Jesus is. The I am, Jesus, uses that Exodus 3.14 quote for who God, who Yahweh says to Moses He is. Jesus does the same quote to the disciples in the boat and says, It is me, do not be afraid, do not fear. What a relevant point for us. Our lives may get harder, may get easier in the weeks to come, but do you have Jesus? And by God's grace, if you have Jesus and we have Jesus, and we know we have Jesus as a church family, that's who our whole life and, and congregation is built upon. God, man, Christ responds. Our lives are about knowing and following Jesus. Church family, we need not be afraid. If you don't know Christ, you need not be afraid. You can know Jesus. In humility, come and confess Him. Turn and follow after Him. This is the good news, the words of life. This morning you can confess Him and receive Him as your Savior. Ask forgiveness. And turn and follow after Him. And if you have done that, let us know. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to come alongside you and, and walk after Jesus with you and and show you this mission that God gives us to follow after Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, and call others to the greatest purpose of life, to glorify Him and to know Him and to celebrate Him and to tell others about Him. Yes, it would be better to be with Christ, but for the sake of others, God has you here. What a joy to serve and to love others. Even if they get nothing and you gain nothing from them, the call that God gives us like Jesus serving the crowd is to serve and to love others and to point them to Jesus, our Savior. That's the good news. Next steps. Three next steps questions I hope you'll consider. The first and the primary idea is that Jesus is the from above Savior of the world, crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven, who will imminently return. My question is, Use the four-minute testimony questions. Write them out. Form your testimony, and would you consider posting that or recording it and sharing it as an email with somebody else? Share how the risen Christ has impacted your life this week. Don't underestimate what the Lord can do. And this, is, I'm sure, is far outside your comfort zone. 
It's outside my comfort zone. I'm speaking to you right now. now. This isn't outside my comfort zone, but recording my testimony and sharing it for some reason to me is more anxiety inducing. Would you consider doing that? Because it's not about us, it's about Him. Second, next step's question. Jesus was worthy of the, worthier of the disciples' attention than the winds that threatened their boat. And Jesus told them, it is I, do not be afraid. So my question to you in this next step is today. How has placing your trust in Jesus changed your perspective of all the things that are going on right now? And share those with Jesus and share those with a friend. The hope you have in Him. And third, in Christ we're not freed from present sickness. We're not freed from the hardships of this world. But what we are promised is that we're hidden in Christ, and Christ in God, our hope of glory. Confess your fears to the Lord. Jesus tells him the disciples, and, his, and, his, and He tells human beings that you're more precious to Him than, than many sparrows. You confess Him before others, He will confess you before the Father. This is good news. Be not afraid. Confess your fears to the Lord, and He will sustain you. Church, what good news we have on this Easter morning. Good news. He has risen indeed.